Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey, and I'm without Valerie for this introduction. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We had an episode planned, and we generally record far enough in advance for the sake of flexibility. But for this week, that wasn't the case, and something came up that prevented us from from fulfilling those those initial plans. Um, Consistency is really important to us, and we wanted to post something, so we decided to upload some old audio. Some of our listeners may know that Hello From Elsewhere isn't our first podcast. In 2018, we started a podcast called Docking Bay Nine and Three Quarters, where we discussed Star Wars and Harry Potter. Uh, long story short, that podcast evolved into Hello From Elsewhere because we wanted to, we wanted to discuss all types of fiction. So, so that old that old podcast is now defunct. And, um, anyways, the the following episode is is archived audio from from Docking Bay Nine and Three Quarters. And uh, we sincerely apologize to any of you who have already heard this audio. Um, but for our newer listeners, we hope you enjoy. Casey came to me with this theory called the ring ring theory. Yeah, it has a few different names: uh, ring theory or uh, chiastic structure, uh, chiasmus. And I had never heard about it, so mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun to do some research. Tell us what. Yeah, when and I'd heard about it in a sense of Star Wars, and there's a theory that Star Wars is a ring a ring composition or a chiastic structure, but I'd never really thought about it in the context of Harry Potter before. And um, we'll get into why why we decided to do this episode and where it came from um, in terms of us and our ideas. But uh, first, yeah, we should probably define what we're talking about so it makes a little more sense. Yes. <laughs> so um, give us a definition. So chiasmus is a it's a figure of speech. So it's when uh, a sentence structure. Um, it's like a sentence structure technique of repetition where the phrases in a sentence are, are paralleled but in reverse order, um, sometimes with the same words, sometimes similes or even uh, contrasting words. Um, just as an example, uh, the biggest example is like ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. So, on so the, they kind of parallel each other. Yeah, and, and in reverse. So if you look at the sentence at the very beginning and the very end is country and in the middle is the words you and they're, they're repeated. Um, another one is we shape our buildings, uh, and afterward our buildings shape us. So it's it's a technique of speech um, to make things more interesting or more memorable. You'll see it a lot in political speeches, but you'll see it elsewhere in um, in poetry and things. And like I thought it was interesting when I was researching that it started way back with like the Iliad and the Odyssey and. Oh, and it's you know there there are examples of it in the Bible and other scriptures like there religious are a texts lot like the Quran uh, the Book of Mormon uses it there's various uh, a lot of religious texts as well um, yeah it's fascinating how long this has been around yeah so on a on a sentence level it's it's called chiasmus and um, but sometimes it, it's taken to a grander scale and that's when it's called chiastic structure or ring composition or ring structure and it's where a book or a, a long work or even a series repeats itself but in reverse order so they it'll parallel each other on two sides. It'll yeah, make probably, more sense as we yeah, start as talking about examples yeah. too. Yeah. Um, um, and like you said, there are examples like in the older works, but in even more recent, more recent than the Iliad and Odyssey, uh, like Lord of the Rings uh, has a ring composition. Some have 
have theorized and and looked into uh, Narnia as well by C.S. Lewis. And the reason that authors will do this is to like deepen an idea or expand an idea uh, to repeat the major themes so that you know really deep down what the theme of a work is. Um, that's a reason they might do this. Or, or just uh, to add beauty to it, it's really cool to learn about and to see the parallels and um, and the contrasting ideas. Right, um, it always makes it feel poetic when yeah, you read it that way. Yeah. Or maybe it feels poetic because that's the way mm-hmm. poems started way back at the beginning of writing. <laughs> yeah, and and... And going on to the the idea of the symmetry, it it's often symmetrical, but sometimes um, it's not an exact parallel. So they'll even be like contrasting ideas, but are similar. And we'll get into this. This will make more sense, I promise. But uh, well, just getting into it uh, for Harry Potter, this would mean if if Harry Potter is a chiastic structure, which I believe it is, and I'm not the only person. And I'll get into some background, but it would mean that books one and seven parallel each other books two and six parallel each other or they might be mirrored or contrasted in some way it's not always a parallel like i said and then books three and five and then book four is the middle central focal point um, that everything sort of parallels around so like i said i got into this actually by by reading about ring theory in star wars there's a really great website by mark climo uh climo or climo i'm not sure how to pronounce it but but he does a really in-depth essay it's it's very long, but if you're interested in this from the Star Wars side of things, uh, I, I highly recommend going into it. It's very detailed. Some of the parallels are a little bit of a stretch to me, but um, some of the Harry Potter ones might be a, feel like a little bit of a stretch as well. So I highly recommend checking out uh, the Star Wars ring theory. Um, it, it will deepen your appreciation for the prequels, I think. It, it did for me. Um, this isn't a brief, brief example of a way that Star Wars uh, will parallel itself so and obviously this theory came out before the Disney acquisition and it's it's mostly just focusing on the Lucas works of uh, specifically of George Lucas and uh, so Phantom Menace would parallel Return of the Jedi Attack of the Clones with Empire Strikes Back and A New Hope with Revenge of the Sith but like I said we really wanted to focus on, on Harry Potter for this episode and uh, this was an instance where, so for my master's thesis I'm, I'm working on a Harry Potter I'm working on Harry Potter and I'm working on book two uh, specifically right now but uh, just for fun in my personal reading I've also been reading book six and I started to notice these really strange and awesome and and kind of obvious when you think about it parallels and and contrasting ideas and themes uh, between books two and six and the more I thought about it I was like well yeah and one and seven kind of do and three and five and I I started to think about uh, the many years ago that I read the chiastic structure uh, related to Star Wars and and I just thought this is awesome and then but then I had the thought was I'm sure I'm not the first person to have this idea just because there's always somebody else there's always somebody else especially in Harry Potter people really go um, deep into Harry Potter and come up with cool ideas and theories and so at first I was like I just came across something awesome and I was like I bet I'm not the only one I'm definitely not the only one I looked it up and there's there's plenty out there. It's it's not as widespread as some of the other Harry Potter theories, uh, but uh, it's it's really cool. And so there's this uh, uh, American scholar named John Granger, which his last name's Granger, which is just perfect. But um, <laughs> he's he's a Harry Potter scholar, and he really focuses on chiastic structure, and not just Harry Potter, but some other things like Narnia and and others. But uh, this we kind of just wanted to introduce the topic, and we're not going to go super 
uh, deep into it, even though it is a little bit deep just by itself. But uh, if you're more interested, I definitely recommend looking up John Granger. He wrote a whole book about Harry Potter and ring composition. Uh, he has some podcasts, uh, episodes that he's been on um, elsewhere on the internet that you can find. And uh, there's a writer named Mary Douglas. She wrote um, Thinking in Circles, an essay on ring composition. And she delineates like the rules of, of ring structure and what it really is. So um, I won't go through all of them super in depth, but just briefly, uh, it has to have the series or the book has to have a prologue. Uh, she says it tells of a dilemma that has to be faced, a command to be obeyed, or a doubt to be allayed. Above all, it is laid out so as to anticipate the midturn and the ending that will eventually respond to it. So that's the first rule is the prologue that sort of sets up the, the dilemma. And so you would say that the whole book one is the prologue? What's your... Um, sometimes it could be. Um, some could say that book one is, but at the very least, um, there is there are prologues in in Sorcerer's Stone. We start with the Dursleys, and Harry's not around yet, and then we have uh, Albus and Minerva, and Harry's not around yet, and that's really setting up Voldemort as a central point of his defeat, so called. We learn that he's not really defeated, but uh, it sets up Voldemort's journey in a lot of ways, even before we learn of Harry's journey. So another rule is that the story is split into two halves around a clearly marked midpoint. So in this one, books one, two, and three, and five, six, and seven would be those two halves, and then four is the midpoint. Right, and I like that idea because when you think about book four, uh, the climax of the book is when Voldemort returns. Yeah. And obviously that's a hinge for the rest of the series. The first three books of, and the first half of the fourth book, most of the fourth book, those have all been leading up to this point where Voldemort returns. And then the rest of the series is this attempt to figure out Lord Voldemort and how to defeat him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's definitely a clear hinge in the middle there. Yeah. So after that midpoint, the story or themes or ideas reverse in comparison to that the first half of the series. And then um, um, the end must connect to the beginning, and, and we'll see that. And also there's the idea that there's often rings within rings. So in Harry Potter, that would look like uh, each book itself would have chiastic structure, so the beginning and the end. Like how that. with every one of Harry Potter's books, they start at the Dursleys, and they usually end with the Dursleys. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's an example of rings within rings. And we, I won't go too much into it, because um, we've mostly just been looking at broadly uh the series but uh yeah let's go into books one and seven and we'll just go through the different the different pairs the different dyads of these books and talk about the parallels or um the contrasting ideas or the themes and uh you and i valerie have talked about this how well organized this series seems to be absolutely she had it so planned out which is why when you brought up this idea of of chiastic structure and ring theory I, w- I was wondering, you know, do you think Voldemort, not Voldemort, do you think J.K. Rowling had come <laughs> That's up? That's a weird Freudian slip. I know, that was a weird one. Do you think that she had planned it out to be in ring theory? With how many, like just the sheer amount? I mean, we have three pages here of just the parallels that um, some of them I've thought of or you've thought of and then some others from around the internet. But this is not an exhaustive list. And I just think when you see all these, I, I don't see how it couldn't be planned this way. I just, I, well, and we I don't know think it's she was a planner. Yeah. She was, you yeah. know, very thorough. She has backgrounds on characters yeah. that you never even hear more th- their name more than once in the books. Like yeah. it's fantastically in depth, which is what I love so much about Harry Potter. Yeah, especially with um, foreshadowing of objects and their importance. So one that we've always talked about is the snitch 
how the snitch turns up in the first book, the one that, that Harry catches in his mouth. And then not until the very end of the seventh, that little snitch comes back into play. As I was reading books two and six, sort of simultaneously, and I was thinking about uh, these connections, I that's where I really started was looking at the objects and how they come into play in a parallel way. For books one and, and seven, that looks like the snitch, where that snitch is never mentioned at all elsewhere. It's only books one and seven, that specific snitch, I mean, not a snitch in general, but... Right, and it comes to play a big role, Yeah, both in Harry's first game where he wins his first ever Quidditch match and at the end of his life, or well, what he thought would be the end of his life. The reason I wanted to start with the snitch is just this idea of I open at the close. I just think that phrase is very emblematic of ring composition in general, like everything is full circle. Yeah, I like that. um, And like like I mentioned, there's a prologue, so there's a prologue in one where Voldemort is the dilemma that's supposed to be faced, as the rule states. Um, And it sets up his return in four, uh, because in book one we learn all about how... um, Some people, Yeah, some people think he's dead, uh, but we learn pretty quickly, as Hagrid says, that he doesn't think that he could be dead, that he's some sort of uh, vague spirit out there. and, and, And we learn that he's trying to come back just in the very beginning in book one with the Sorcerer's Stone and trying to get some sort of immortality and all the stuff with the unicorn blood. So it's all set up right from the beginning of Voldemort's journey, which comes to a head in book four, as we talked about, which is the very middle. And then at the very end, book seven. Uh, You mentioned that the objects are one of the things that you can see um, clearly, but there's also lots of themes that carry throughout and that mirror each other. So like when you think about the theme of life and death, which is huge throughout all of Harry Potter, Um, It plays a huge role in Harry's life because of his own parents' death and and at at that same point, you know, Voldemort's death and and how that shapes him and his childhood. Um, But what's interesting is in the first book, we learn that Voldemort died, or so we believe and some people believe. Um, But then you get to the midpoint where we talked about in book four that he comes back. And then at the very... And in the seventh book is his final death. So you get that mirrored. Yeah, and I'd say life and death are the biggest themes in one and seven, at least compared to the to the other books. Um, life and death is obviously a theme throughout the entire series, but I think they're the most poignant in, in these books, one, four, and seven. And then also uh, you, you brought up Voldemort and Harry, and uh, they're so intertwined, their stories, and and the themes are intertwined with them. Um, they have very similar upbringings, but they just make different choices. Uh, I, th- I think it's also important to note the theme of, of sacrifice and, and Lily's sacrifice. In book one, Harry, well, even before book one, but we learn about it in book one, Harry is a baby and he has no choice in what's happening, right? He is just there and Lily chooses for Harry to to save his life, and he has life chosen for him, basically. This is contrasted with with book four, where uh, Harry's in the graveyard, and he's forced to face Voldemort. Like, he doesn't have any choice. And at the point where he finally does have a choice, he runs. So he chooses life again. But this is very um, complete. You're talking about in the graveyard. Yeah, sorry, in the graveyard. He finally, the bonds are broken, and he runs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because because of, uh, again, the intervention of his mother or his mother's spirit or, or whatever it is that uh, when Harry sees his parents again. And uh, this is paralleled again in book seven, 
at the very end. But at this point, Harry doesn't choose life, but he does have a choice and he chooses death. Uh, and and so there you see that it's not always an exact parallel. Sometimes it's very similar, but things are going to be twisted just a little bit. You could also think about, you were talking about his parents, and so I was thinking about the point where he, in the first book, the first time he sees his parents are when uh, he looks in the mirror of Erised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he sees his parents there in the mirror, and then he sees them in the fourth book at the Priori and Contentum. How do you say yeah, that? Sounds yeah, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't see them again until the seventh book yeah. when he gets the uh, the resurrection stone and so there's there's that ring that you would say, you know so that he if it comes full circle the book first book has his parents and the last book has his parents and that's probably the last time he ever sees his parents so oh, yeah, you know if you think about the rest of his life so he's got sees them for the first time in the first book and for the last time in the seventh book and then he sees them in the middle because the middle is very important here with the first and with the beginning and the end, you can't talk about those without the middle. And and another one that I thought of just this past week, as I was thinking about this episode is, is how Harry is alone uh, in the climaxes or toward the end of these ones in particular. If you talk about, so in book one, he's by himself with Quirrell and Voldemort. And there's that line. I don't remember if it's a line in the book or if it's just a line in the movie, but uh Ron tells him, not me, not Hermione, you, you know? Right. Uh, and so Harry's pushed by his friends, essentially, to, and he has to face Voldemort or Quirrell and Voldemort alone. In book four, uh, he goes there with Diggory, but Diggory dies. And, of course, Ron and Hermione aren't there. So Harry's, again, he's alone, other than the Death Eaters, of course. But uh, in terms of our Support. hero, our hero's right. alone, yeah. And then in books, in book seven, he chooses chooses to face Voldemort and chooses alone again um right because he drops the resurrection stone before he steps up to Voldemort right uh, but yeah Harry chooses to face to face Voldemort alone and that's contrasted in in most of the other books not all of them because it's it's really not perfect but uh like for example book two he does face Tom Riddle alone but uh in book three he's with Hermione at the end and in book five, he's with all the or a lot of the Dumbledore's army in the ministry. Uh, in book six, he's he doesn't even face Voldemort, and that's uh, brings up the other point that Voldemort is central to the to the beginning, the middle, and the end. Um, and and their stories are intertwined, like I said. And just on a grand level, I think Harry and Voldemort are most connected in these books, whereas the other books are kind of filler in a way at least in the main story that they're telling and Voldemort's a little bit more in the background compared to one four and seven and then um so those are like the big themes in in one four and seven the big connections but there's also little lots of little fun fun little details um in these books that parallel each other or connect you think about Harry in book one he's coming to Privet Drive for the first time and he comes on um in on the motorbike with Hagrid Sirius's motorbike and so it's interesting that that then in book seven he leaves Privet Drive for the last time on that same motorbike with Hagrid and and relatedly also Hagrid carries Harry in both of those books so he carries Harry as a baby and then after Harry is supposedly dead Hagrid is carrying him again oh interesting there are also parallels like when in the first book Harry is an orphan which is how he ends up living with relatives um, and then in the last book, we get another couple that dies facing Voldemort, 
and they leave their son an orphan in Remus and Tonks. And uh, so their son, Teddy, he becomes an orphan just like Harry. Yeah, and, and relatedly, also, Harry begins in book one as a new student, and he's unsure about things, and he's worried about going into Slytherin. And that parallels the epilogue with his son, Albus Severus, as as a new student, worried about being in Slytherin. But the difference is Harry's learned something by then, and he knows that not all Slytherins are bad. Uh, but that's that's a reason that the epilogue is so important to the ring composition, because it has to mirror book one. There's also the importance of wands and their connections, uh, we see that with Ollivander only being in books 1, 4, and 7. So we see him um, when he gives Harry his wand. And then in book 4... Uh, he's at the weighing of the wands for the Triwizard Tournament, yeah. And then in book 7, we see him again in the Malfoy Dungeon. And yeah, those books are really important in terms of the wand lore. And also the connections, again, the connections between... Harry and Voldemort, and they that scene through the wands with the literal um, same phoenix feather in their wands, and then their spells connect uh, in in book four, and um, Harry and Voldemort connect again in in book seven. So yeah, wands and and their importance is is at a grander scale in these books compared to the others. Another object that we see that's mirrored in books one and seven is the Deluminator, because we see. Um, Dumbledore with it at the very in the you know prologue of book one and then we see Ron with it in book seven and that's another instance where the object becomes more important by the end as well just like the snitch right because at first you're like oh that's just kind of a cool object yeah and but then in book seven you're like wow that's an important object yeah so let's move on to books two and six and talk about some of their mirroring or their con- contrasts. Uh, one of the fun ones is the Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers. Um, obviously, in every book, we get a different teacher, but Slughorn and Lockhart are particularly connected in that the their memories and the truth of memories is an important theme. Oh, I hadn't thought about so, that. So, yeah, so with Lockhart, he's faking all these actions that he's done uh, just so he can write books, and he's very good at memory charms. And uh, to contrast that, you have Slughorn, who is withholding his own uh, memory about Horcruxes and what he told Tom Riddle. And so both of them are playing with what's true, what's not in terms of memory. Right, like how Lockhart alters people's memories and Slughorn alters the memory that is given to Dumbledore. And then also they both start clubs, which is a fun little one. So the dueling club with Lockhart and a Slughorn Slug Club. We don't see any of the other uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers do that. So. Or any other teachers, really. That's true. They're the only two who are self-important enough to think that people would be part of their club. That's true. They are very both very self-important in kind of different ways. Uh, Slughorn's a collector of, of people that he can name drop, mm-hmm. and, and Lockhart's all about him, me, me, me. But uh, they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, I think. Definitely. We first meet Aragog in book two. Um, in the forest because they're trying to figure out if he was the um, the creature that is in the Chamber of Secrets. And so Ron and Harry go and meet him there. And then in book six, we see we see Aragog again at his funeral and Hagrid's there all, and, and Slughorn. The big connection between books two and six is the idea of Horcruxes. Uh, we have no idea what a Horcrux is before book six, but we learn that Tom Riddle's diary in book two is uh, is a Horcrux, and it's the first Horcrux that 
the readers encounter and that Harry encounters. And that doesn't come into play at all um, until book six, even though Voldemort's in book four and, and all kinds of things are happening before that point. Um, it's, I think it's important to note that, that these books parallel around Horcruxes and they're central to the stories even. You know, Tom Riddle's diary is, is very important in book two. And in book six, uh, well, the whole story is Harry working with Dumbledore and learning about Horcruxes and, and starting to try looking for them. And uh, I think that's the, the big major connection between books two and six. Yeah, that's interesting, especially when you think that the diary is kind of the impetus for Dumbledore's uh, thoughts about, well, I think maybe Voldemort has made Horcruxes. Mm. And so he has started thinking about it after book two, and he's had this time between books two and book six to formulate more theories and find more things. And uh, when he picks up Harry in book six, we see his blackened hand, which you later find out is from him tackling a horcrux on his own. Yeah. So you kind of see his own learning process. It's behind the scenes, but you see that Dumbledore isn't infallible, but that he kind of learns as he goes. And so he's learning about the horcruxes and you find more out about that in books two and then book six. Another connection between books two and six are the importance of the snakes to Voldemort. Like we get to see Voldemort's connection with the snakes. Um, when we see him as Tom Riddle and we realize that he's the one who is the heir to Salazar Slytherin, he speaks Parseltongue and he has the control over the basilisk. And then in book six, we see the importance of snakes with the Gaunt family, which is Voldemort's uncle and grandfather. And we um, see, oh, what's his name? Marvolo's the grandfather and the uncle's name is... Oh, um... Put you on the spot here. I just blanked on it, too. <laughs> well, the uncle... It's really going to bug me now. Anyways. the Yeah, we see him speaking with snakes in the garden, and there's a snake skin hung to the... You know, tacked to the door of, the, of their little cottage there. And uh, so we see this connection between uh, the importance of the snakes in 2 and 6. Yeah, not just important to Voldemort, but uh, their connection to Harry, too. In book 2 is where Harry learns that he can speak and understand parcel tongue and parcel tongue doesn't really come into play at all in three, four and five. I can't remember any instances. Um, maybe when Voldemort's talking to Nagini in book four, maybe, but, uh, but, and then in book six, he can understand um, the Gaunts who are speaking parcel tongue um, just fine. And so he's kind of confused at first. And then Dumbledore tells him that he's speaking parcel tongue. It's really bugging me the name thing. Marvolo, Marope, and it's got to be another M, Milton. <laughs> Mitchell. <laughs> mm, it's an M for sure. I just can't remember it. <laughs> Maxwell. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll look it up right after this. But <laughs> if we forget, just let us know. Um, one of the the major ones, uh, and I, I think this might be the one that made me that got, got me started thinking about this, is. Uh, all the stuff with Borgen and Burks and the vanishing cabinet and vanishing cabinet and the uh, the cursed necklace. That's all introduced in book two, and it's all kind of um, just random little things that no one really thinks much about. And right, it goes back to the planning of mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling. When you just like in book two, you're like, they mention that Malfoy sees a necklace in a store and you know in the Borgen and Burks and and Harry comes out of the vanishing cabinet or he um hides in the vanishing cabinet 
to stay away from the Malfoys. Yeah, all this stuff uh, comes into play. It's lucky he didn't close the door. In a heavy way. Oh, the vanishing I cabinet? I never that. thought about that before either. He does keep it open, doesn't he? Wouldn't he just get stuck somewhere? You don't have to do a spell with the vanishing stuck cabinet? Stuck there between... I'm not sure how the vanishing I cabinet works. They've never really said it. Um, the, the cabinet is in book five, so it's not like it's not mentioned at all. But it's introduced in two, and it's central to the plot and Malfoy's story in book six. So, I'm still on the thing about don't close the, ca- uh, the, mm. the cabinet door. It's just like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Shouldn't close the wardrobe door. <laughs> A parallel between books two and six is in the danger that's faced with the students at Hogwarts. Um, in book two, we know that people are being attacked by the basilisk, although we don't know it's the basilisk yet, but we know that enemies to the air beware. And so we, well, we, Harry especially theorizes that it's Malfoy, um, Draco Malfoy, who has let loose the basilisk at Hogwarts. And, uh, so we get that fear there. And then in book six, there's some random attacks like um, with the necklace with Katie Bell and then um, with Ron and the um, the wine. No, the oak matured mead. That's not wine. <laughs> I don't know my alcohols very well. <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, so we there are these, you know, kind of random attacks on, on students again. And again, um, Harry suspects Malfoy. In the second book, he's wrong about Malfoy, but Hermione and Ron are supporting him in that decision. Whereas in the sixth book, he's right about Malfoy being the one behind these attacks. And Ron and Hermione are not so sure about it. They don't really back him up on this one. They're like, you always suspect Malfoy. (laughs) He wouldn't really be a Death Eater. Yeah, all the stuff with Malfoy is the the are the really cool uh, the really cool parallels and and as you brought up like they're mirrors of themselves. So also with Malfoy in in book two he's suspected and he's not the heir of Slyther- of Slytherin but he wishes he was or that he could help whoever the heir is. In book six he is doing these attacks but he doesn't really want to. He feels forced into it with the Death Eaters and with Voldemort and that if he fails he's going to die. Um, he doesn't really feel like he has a choice. So, so Malfoy's uh, motivations and his actions are all mirrored as well. Um, and and you brought up the students are in danger. These are the two where there's talk of closing down Hogwarts uh, is is in the air among the students and the staff. I was just thinking about Malfoy and then moaning Myrtle and how we see her in book two in the bathroom and we see her in book six in the bathroom with Malfoy and we realize that she's been you know comforting Malfoy so that's another small instance of a connection there in talking about books two and six you have to bring up Ginny Weasley because those are the two books where she features most prominently um in book two uh, that's her first year at Hogwarts and so we kind of you know see her getting there and we see her she's around in the background of the story until at the very end when you realize that she was the one who was helping uh through the diary to open the Chamber of Secrets. And so she plays a very important role there. And in that story, in book two, she's very obsessive with Harry and she's very kind of weak. She um, doesn't really know herself yet. And uh, all of that is very opposite of how we see her in book six. She's very sure of herself. She's no longer obsessed with Harry and he finds that attractive. Like he's 
he's like, wow, she's really matured or grown up or whatever you want to call it. Um, we also see instances of her power instead of her weakness, casting cool hexes or with her being like on the Quidditch team. And so we see how strong she is there. And we just get this sense of how how cool she is. And so she's she's definitely a different character from what she is in book two. And although we see her in three, four, and five in small places, she's not a central character at all until, you know, the end of book two and the end of book six when she and Harry get together. Going back to a little bit to what we talked about Horcruxes, but both books two and six deal with dangerous books. Uh, we have the diary and then the advanced potions making book. And also um, Hermione is urging Harry to to throw out the advanced potion making. And, and people keep, and Ginny too, and they keep mentioning Riddle's diary. So it keeps connecting back to book to book two and and these books that have secrets and are mysterious and are important to the plot and to the characters. We also have at the end of books two and six where Dumbledore is gone from the school. In book two, he's sent away from the school by the um, by the school board um, because of all the attacks on Hogwarts. And then in book six, he's off fighting with you know getting the the lock locket with Harry. And then when he does make it back to Hogwarts, is is just so sad when you think about it, like he's gone, gone at this point. In book two, he gets to return, and in book six, he never fully returns to Hogwarts. You know, he arrives, but he doesn't last much longer than that before um, and before Snape kills him. What's interesting, and I just barely thought of this, is the connection of the Malfoy family and Dumbledore and trying to get rid of him how Lucius is trying to get rid of him in book two, but doesn't succeed. Right. And it's because of Draco that that uh, essentially that Snape has to kill uh, Dumbledore is because of Draco. So so the father couldn't do it, but in, a lot, in, in some sense, the son did. Oh, right. Just that Malfoy was the one who kind of forced the hand of the school board members because he's on the school board, um, you know, to get rid of Dumbledore. Um, and then, you know, Draco's hand is kind of, forced to get rid of Dumbledore and so he's trying to follow through with that but he doesn't succeed and Snape steps in. We also have the Polyjuice Potion playing a major role with the main trio learning about it in book two and then the their opposites uh, their villainous trio so to speak Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are using the Polyjuice Potion throughout book book six. So those are just a few of the one of the examples from books uh two and six so let's move on to books three and five what do you want to start with uh just overall this these are like the serious black books we learn about serious black in book three and he is central to that book he is the title character the prisoner of azkaban uh, and then in book five um especially in the book uh, there's a, a lot of connection between Harry and Sirius, and that's obviously the book where Sirius dies. Uh, there's also learning more about the Black family, and um, relatedly, these are the two books where a Black family member escapes from Azkaban. In book three is where Sirius escapes. Book five is where Bellatrix escapes. Uh, so these are the Black books. When looking at books three and five, you also note the Dementors, Fairly close to the beginning of book three, we meet the Dementors for the first time on the train ride to Hogwarts, and uh, we see their effect there on Harry, and uh, there throughout all of book three, we get the Dementors that are, you know, around Hogwarts, and they're supposedly 
protecting the students, um, keeping them safe from Sirius Black. And then in book five, we see them, uh, we see a couple of Dementors again when they are no longer supposedly protecting Harry from Sirius Black. They are now attacking Harry and his cousin um, Dudley at the beginning of book five, where they're no longer solely under the control of the Ministry. So we get that kind of um, mirroring of the Dementors in their role. And related to that is you see how Fudge and the Ministry is interfering at Hogwarts in both these books in particular. In book three, they've introduced the Dementors around Hogwarts to protect the school and also to search for Sirius Black because uh, they know Black is going to go looking for Harry. But then in book five, uh, Fudge is really interfering at Hogwarts through Umbridge and um, and they're... they're they're pushing their way into Hogwarts in a way that's way more pointed than in any of the other books. They're definitely mirrored in that way. I just had the thought, because um, you mentioned Umbridge, and she's in book six, or sorry, five. But in book three is where we meet Aunt Marge, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's at the beginning, and I was just thinking about these two kind of similar characters, these women that are described as large and interfering and loud and hate Harry. And so I was just thinking about that little connection there. Yeah, that's there. true. That's funny. <laughs> they're, they're kind of similar characters. And, you know, in one book, Harry gets Aunt Marge sent off, balloons her away. And in the fifth book, they get rid of Umbridge by um, sending her off with the centaurs. So. And related to Aunt Marge as the under, underage wizardry situation, uh, in book three, um, obviously Aunt Marge balloons up and then Harry meets Fudge but Fudge just sort of brushes it off like it's no big deal which is mirrored to book 5 where Harry uses magic to save himself and, and Dudley from the Dementors but then it's a very big deal at this point and it's it's sort of the opposite and they are they're going to the other extreme of maybe expelling Harry from, from school. So Right and also opposites where Fudge is protecting Harry. He's now accusing Harry in front of an entire trial of the Wisengamot, and so they... I don't know if that's how you say that either. I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud. Wisengamot? (laughs) Wisengamot? Anyways, that's... You know, you meet Fudge again, but this time, instead of brushing it off, he's holding Harry to the maximum penalty. We also get Harry's... um, I don't know what you'd call him, his extracurricular special lessons that he gets in books three and five. In books three, he's getting Dementor lessons to keep the Dementors away by learning how to use the Patronus charm. And then in book five, he is getting Oculumency um, lessons with Snape. Also kind of contrasting there is he has lessons with the professor that he loves the most and then with the professor that he hates the most. And not only that, but uh, one he succeeds with, he right. becomes very proficient in the Patronus charm. Mm-hmm. And Occlumency, he, Never he can't do masters. it. He, yeah. he fails. And uh, so that's another way that they are reversed. Another fun one is the night bus comes into play only in these two books. Uh, it appears in, books, in book three uh, when Harry takes the night bus to Diagon Alley to the Leaky Cauldron. And then in book five, they take the night bus to Grimald Place. And that's the only times that we ever see or hear about the night bus another quick one is the bog arts that we see um in lupin's class in book three and then with the bog art that's at grimald place um when molly weasley's trying to defeat it there 
We also get Snape's history with the Marauders in, in both these books, and um, you can right, and all the memories of Harry's father. You know, because Lupin comes into play with having known Harry, and they meet Sirius, and and they learn about Wormtail there. And then in book five, we learn about we see more of those um, the Marauders from James and and Sirius and Lupin. We meet Sirius and Lupin again, at least in book. Five as part of the Order of the Phoenix. They play a role there. So I think in that sense, you could call books one and seven uh, the Lily books, um, books two and and six the Dumbledore books, and books three and five the James uh, books, just because even though they're Sirius Black and Lupin, they're all connected through Harry's dad, and, and that's how Harry connects to them. That's an interesting way of putting it, because those are all very important characters to Harry and his his story and his life. His mom, his dad, and Dumbledore are mm-hmm. like his three of his biggest role models, support. Yeah, and any mentors. other adults that he connects to, it's because of their relationship to someone else. Like like I said, book three and five is is heavy with Sirius Black and Lupin, but it's because of the past there with, with Harry's dad. So we talked about how in this ring theory composition there's got to be a hinge and our book four is that hinge for us it's that crucial um crucial moment so and we talked a little bit about it um like i said you can't really talk about the beginning and end without talking about the middle so we won't go too much into it but um mary douglas who i mentioned before she said that the middle is the site of an impressive climax that focuses on the major crisis in the narrative and and you mentioned this at the very beginning when you first started getting into this that the major crisis is is Voldemort's return at the very end of right. book four, um, and something the way that I see it, and the way I see ring composition in Harry Potter is the easiest way, other than the fun little details on a grand scale. The best way to see it is to think about Voldemort, and and we talked about it a little bit, but in books one, two, and three, it's all about Voldemort trying to rise to power, and and he has some ups and downs with with the Sorcerer's Stone and Riddle's Diary, but eventually he gets to book four and he returns to his body. So um, he's alive now, he has a body, and then between books four and seven, he is actually slowly marching to his death uh, unwittingly and uh, with the destruction of, of more Horcruxes between five and six, uh, the rest of the Horcruxes in seven, um, also with all of his focus on the prophecy and how that ultimately leads to his downfall because of his singular focus on Harry when when he sort of makes the prophecy come true. Um, so I just like thinking about this through Voldemort. Absolutely. I love the idea that we see Voldemort going from being a, a part of a soul to gaining a body again and then to slowly losing pieces of his, pieces of his soul, those horcruxes, to becoming nothing. So he comes full circle, full ring, definitely. Full circle, and it, and it reverses right there at the middle point, especially. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been a very fun episode. We've enjoyed getting deeper into the all the details that uh, mirror each other or contrast from each other. Yeah, I've, I've loved, I, I could talk about this all day, and hopefully we've explained it well enough, and that um, if, you, if you're interested, you'll seek it out further, because uh, this really is just a, an introduction and a taste 